0: Amen. Just over uh, five years ago, I was in Israel with a group of what was characterized as Christian leaders from the southeast. There were um, a couple of us from South Carolina, a couple from uh, North Carolina, from Virginia, from Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. I, I, they weren't all pastors. Uh, they were all uh, either involved in public policy or Christian leadership of some sort. And, um, and it was not our typical trip to Israel. Uh, now, we did visit uh, the sites where Jesus walked and uh, performed miracles, and we um, visited the uh, special sites in Jerusalem. We also saw some of the ancient biblical locations, but also we um, were engaged in educational and geopolitical affairs for the nation of Israel, uh, the modern Israel state. Um, so we visited places in Tel Aviv. We went up to the northern border, saw into Lebanon, went up to the Golan Heights, looked over into Syria. And uh, met with, uh, really, generals and some folks that just kind of talked about those uh, strategic challenges that Israel faces based on where it is. And then we went down near to the the Gaza envelope, those places that are right within um, rocket attack of uh, Gaza. And I remember it was a Friday when we went down there because, at the time, Hamas was staging a protest every Friday where they would burn uh, tires. And um, I I don't know what else they engaged in, but I remember I could see just a couple miles away— the fence of the Gaza and could see that black smoke billowing up and uh, you know just enough to set you on edge a little bit and uh, we went to the city of Stirot, and if you paid attention to the news you maybe have heard about Stirot this weekend. Um, I remember touring there and what we were learning about is what it's like for somebody to live to thrive not just live but to thrive there in harm's way Uh, because uh, the reality of rocket attack was is very real every single day of the year uh, there in these locations, and so I remember we went to a playground, a park where there was a playground, so families would bring their children here because um, they're thriving in stroke, and there was this um, like caterpillar-looking tunnel thing built on the uh, playground, just, you know, looks exactly like you would imagine a playground here, a little different, of course, but playing. but we, we found out, we said, what are you supposed to do if you're at the park and the siren sound? Well, it was actually a bomb shelter, reinforced concrete there on the middle of this playground so that families could hide uh, and, uh, you know, survive a possible rocket attack right there any day. Um, We also went to a kibbutz called uh, Kafar Aza, which is a community just three miles from the Gaza border. This is where I remember seeing that smoke. And as soon as we got off the bus, the local who was there hosting us, uh, talking to us about how they um, raise children and talk about the reality of what can happen any day where they live. And it's real important, strategic for Israel to maintain these settlements, uh, these areas. I mean, this is within Israel proper. This is not um, any kind of new settlement. This is uh, it's where it's been historically. And um, they, she explained to us, she said, and, and she seemed a little rattled, but she said, as soon as we got off the bus, if you hear the sirens sound, we have 10 seconds to get into that bomb shelter. And she pointed us, she said, don't ask questions, just follow us. Well, of course, I'm thinking, what are we doing here, <laughs> you know? Um, but it was, uh, it, they had recently been dealing with attacks there. This is just over five years ago. Um, and so yesterday I saw pictures of some of these hostages that were taken um, along there, close to the, in the Gaza envelope. And um, uh, one of them was a picture from the kibbutz where I was, Kavar Aza. And it's a young lady, civilian, obviously, um, covered up in a blanket to hide her face, on a golf cart, rushing towards Gaza, to take this young lady hostage, Um, right there where we were in Kafar Aza. All of this to say, the conflict in Israel playing out before our eyes on national news right now and international news involves real people, real people um, who are attempting to live a normal life but um, are born and are living in places where there's very real threat. And I recognize there are real people on both sides of this border, and I believe that there are civilians that are attempting to thrive even in Gaza. And, of course, they are there living under the threat of bloodthirsty leaders. So it's a heartbreaking situation. Around 10 million souls living in Gaza and Israel today find themselves in a war zone, and most are totally innocent of any of the other affairs that are taking place uh, the political conversations, uh, the, the the struggle. Um, and very few are prepared to face eternity out of those 10 million. So as believers in Jesus Christ, we must con- commit the situation to prayer for peace and for gospel advance. I want to read to you from the Psalm, Psalm 122. It says, Pray for the peace of Jer- Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Heavenly Father, we lift up uh, this war-torn situation in the Middle East, in Israel, this modern state that uh, carries on the legacy of your chosen people that you place there. Father, we pray for protection. We pray for solutions. And uh, we pray for a quick resolution to what's going on there. Father, we pray especially for souls whose lives are in danger of eternal damnation, Lord. So we pray, even in the midst of all this, that your kingdom would advance. Father, we pray for our own government leaders and our own hearts as uh, that we would be called to prayer in situations like this and mindful with a biblical worldview of just what it's like to live in a world, a world that's filled with danger, but the opportunity to find a Savior who gives us hope and an eternity with Him, with God. So, Lord, we pray that you. Work now in that situation. Be with us all in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last several weeks, uh, we've been in the book of 2 Peter, and that's where we're going to continue to be today. We've been in a series of sermons we've called Precious and Magnificent Promises. In chapter 1 of 2 Peter, the writer reminds us that we have been given um, everything we need for life and uh, godliness through the knowledge, the true knowledge, um, and the goodness that we have in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, so... Chapter 1, this is all you've got. Chapter 2, Peter shifts his attention. He now turns toward the great pretenders of the faith. He's concerned, Peter is, this is near the end of his life, he's concerned about the rise of false teachers and the heretical thinking that's spreading throughout the church. And he writes this letter to remind believers of the basics of the faith that he says, you already know. He says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things that you already know. And all of this is a reminder because it becomes a defense. A defense against false teaching and against false teachers. And so he opens chapter 2 by addressing the character of the false teachers. Talks about their destiny. And then here we come to the conclusion of the chapter, Peter shifts his attention towards the effects that these false teachers have on those to whom yield to their teaching. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. I want to invite you to turn with me. We're going to be in 2 Peter Chapter 2, I'm going to begin by reading the first three verses of the chapter, and then we will turn over to our text for this morning, verses 17 through 22. So 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then 17 through 22. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 17 These are springs without water, and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify your children with truth today? Father, we pray for lost souls that today they would find Jesus. Father, may we be ever mindful of your spirit as you speak to us in this moment. Lord, I pray that I would not get in the way of this conversation you want to have with your people. Lord, but only through you would you speak through me of the word of truth that we have here contained in the scriptures. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the text, Peter explains the level of deception that false teachers engage in and the damage they can inflict upon a people. And what I believe that we learn from this text is that as believers, we are more effective at the spiritual warfare that's engaging in the spiritual spiritual warfare all around us when we know the technique of our enemy and we understand the impact of their lies. And so Peter does a helpful thing for us. And he reveals several identifying marks of false teachers and fake Christians in the text. And then he also describes the lies of a false freedom that they have been talking about. So we're going to first look at the marks of false teachers and then the lies of false freedoms. We'll begin in verse 17 with the false teachers. And I am indebted to pastor and professor uh, Dr. Herschel York for some comments that he provides on this text really was helpful in developing this outline. But um, I hope you can notice here as you look at the text, and it may be that you're just reading and, and not engaging with the text, but if you really engage with the text, you'll notice there is no love lost between Peter and these false teachers. He's using very direct, very harsh language, um, you know, uh, very strong words here to express his disdain for they, who they are and what they are doing upon, in the church. They're deceivers, and the damage that they're doing on the church is serious, and the damage that they're inflicting upon people is of an eternal nature. So false teachers spreading lies about the gospel, spreading lies about the truth of God's word. And it's not just a problem in Peter's day. It's a problem in our own day. Um, Sometime last year, my wife had inquired about some Christian literature that was available, and um, it was a legitimate stuff. It was very good material. Um, and a couple weeks later, somebody's following up, and they show up at the door, and I happen to be there. And it took me about thirty seconds to realize they were Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were hoping hoping to connect us with um, Watchtower material. So I briefly talked to the couple, and then I pointed out we're going to have very big differences about God's Word, about uh, Jesus, about salvation. And so I pointed out how very clearly the Scriptures indicate Jesus is God. He is not um, uh, some divine being that was created. He is God, and he was God from the beginning. He didn't become the Christ when he was baptized. He is God. And I underscored the sufficiency of Scripture, that we don't need outside sources like the Watchtower magazine to understand the truth of God's Word. And then I described to them how the book of Romans makes it plain that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And that's it. Uh, No works needed. Um, It it is all on the merits of Christ that we're saved. And so um, they let me know we had some disagreements. (laughs) And so I pointed them to the scriptures and I said, I would encourage you to read this. Read it with an open mind, with a willingness to be corrected. The Jehovah's Witnesses are very effective at witnessing. And the truth is they're pious people. I mean, they hold um, heretical beliefs, but they're very kind and uh, very helpful and maybe inspirational. But what they teach contradicts scripture, and it's a spreading of false teaching. But of course, they would say, I'm the one who is spreading the false teaching. So the question becomes, how do we know? How do we know who the true believer is? You may be sitting there, and you're like, you know what? I'm taking West's word. I really don't know, and I hope that you think that. I hope you don't just trust me. I will always point you to God's word. That's what we have to trust. And so Peter addressed that earlier in his letter. He said that the anchor for our belief is the prophetic uh, word and uh, the, um, uh, the apostolic witness. Uh, that's what we have to build our truth upon, the truth of God's word. And I'll admit that sometimes it's really hard to discern who's the true Christian, who's not. Who's a legitimate teacher, who's not. And sometimes I find someone who I just follow wholeheartedly and uh, to find out that there's, they're actually living a lie. Or maybe they walk away from what they say— uh, profess to believe. And it's a very disappointing thing. And we get his insight here, Peter's insight here, excuse me, we get the Lord's insight here through Peter's words in the second epistle. And so he describes these marks of the, the fake Christian. And the first mark of the fake Christian that I notice in the text is that they are empty in their abilities. The false teachers are empty in their abilities. I want you to listen to how Peter describes it. He says, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. What's a spring without water? It's a dry hole. It's dirt. It's dust. It's very disappointing. You can imagine if somebody is thirsting to the point of uh, needing it or to survive, they show up at the spring to find out that there's no water in it. I mean, that would be absolutely devastating, right? Uh, It would not satisfy Well, such is the false teacher. A spring without water. Or it's like the farmer who sees the clouds moving in, expects the crops are going to get the water, but it's only a mist being pushed on by the storm. There's nothing there. It will not satisfy. Same thing with the false teacher. Disappointing. It's actually even life-threatening. The false teacher claims to have what the soul needs, but all they have is empty teaching, no living water. On the other hand, Jesus proclaimed in and around the temple during the uh, Feast of Booths and the three years of his ministry that if anyone was thirsty, they should come to him and drink. In fact, he says in John 7, verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus makes a promise here. If you would believe in him, and we know that every promise in him is a yes, if we believe in him, his promise is, you will have water that comes from within. He's talking about spiritual satisfaction. That's what we find in Jesus. So, people attempt to satisfy that spiritual thirst in all kinds of different ways. We try to do it through uh, relationships, uh, we try to satisfy that thirst through um, uh, success, through power, through experiences of pleasure. Jesus says every bit of that is a broken cistern, it will not hold water. Only Jesus satisfies. So, the first marker is they're empty in their abilities. They're emptying their abilities. The second marker is they're doomed in their destiny. Verse 17 says they have this black darkness that's been reserved for them. This is where it becomes clear that Peter does not take false teaching lightly. That's because God does not take false teaching lightly. Verse 14, Peter calls these uh, false teachers to curse children. And here in verse 17, he says they will face certain judgment. Uh, eternal darkness, the gloom of darkness. It's the same place reserved for fallen angels. Um, The scriptures tell us that hell is a very real place. It's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It's also a place for those who reject Christ, for those who would believe and actually uh, teach a false Christ. In other words, Peter's drawing a distinction here. Um, There's a difference between somebody who has a different conviction or maybe an interpretation on a small matter. There's a difference between that and those who follow a false gospel because there is one name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. So those who expect to receive salvation by way of works or through some special knowledge or by a religious, religious ritual, they've been misled. That sort of spiritual pursuit... Will lead you to a spring with no water. It's like a mist just blown over by a storm. Only grace by faith in Jesus is sufficient and able to satisfy our deepest longings. So these false teachers are empty in abilities, they're doomed in destiny. And what we see in the text is that their strategy now for garnering followers, I would say, they are enticing to the flesh. That's who these false teachers are. They are enticing to the flesh. Verse 18 says, they speak with confidence about their spiritual perspective. It's this actually empty, boastful words is what we imagine they're saying. And their allure, though, the bait they use is to indulge the flesh. Now, you'll have to remember, we talked about this in the last couple weeks. These false teachers um, believed that it was... While it's important to trust Jesus for salvation, um, that saves your soul, it doesn't matter what you do in the body. They, they said that Jesus will not return, Jesus will not judge. Uh, that's what these false teachers were saying. And uh, they, they, they were saying, all God cares about is your soul. What you do in the body does not matter. So the appeal was, you can trust Jesus and live the way you want to. And Paul gives us an idea of these lustful desires that lead people astray in Galatians five. He calls it immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, envying, drunkenness, carousing. There's a whole list of them there, a whole lot that kind of pulls at our flesh. And the idea that you can follow Jesus and live in sin is not an idea that's gone away. I think there are many Christians who would like to know how they can follow Jesus and indulge the flesh at the same time. You know, they don't want to um, walk away from Jesus, but they also don't want to miss out on all that the world has to offer. In other words, they want the whole world and all it has to offer, but also want a, they want a big side of Jesus on the platter, right? Uh, so it's give me everything, but I'll take a little bit of that as well. But that's not authentic Christianity. Jesus said, come follow me. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that means we can't follow anything else. If we're going to follow Jesus, he says we have to take up our cross in order to do so. To follow something else is an inferior pursuit. It's less than, not better than. So the false teachers are here. They're enticing by fleshly desire. It's not always overt. It may just be that there's a lack of accountability. Or it's just kind of we brush over. It's like, well, as long as you are, you know, your, your heart's in the right place. But there's definitely this accommodation for sinful living. The strategy... It's not out only how they entice, but who they entice. The text reveals they are selective in their targets. Verse 18 says the teachers target, if you notice there at the end of it, those who, uh, the, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. That means the false teachers are not going after the most grounded believers. They're not going for the people who are spending their day in the word of God. Uh, they're not going after those who are intent on dying to themselves, those who are trying to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. The enemy is probably um, isn't uh, you know, using false teachers here to target the most serious follower of Jesus. He'll trip them up in other ways. The fake believers likely don't have those who are maturing in their faith in their crosshairs. They are aiming for those who are barely escaping. Well, who would that be? Probably those who are already listening to false teaching. People who aren't discerning whenever they read, you know, with the books that they read, with the preachers they listen to, with the material that they, uh, you know, uh, engage with online. People who are more likely to follow feeling rather than thinking. I think that false teachers would target those who are already predisposed to indulging passion. So people who uh, maybe are very active in the church or maybe an active in a Bible study or uh, tries to put on uh, at the right time to do the right thing spiritually, but the rest of the week, live like the world. That's probably who the false teacher is going after. People, uh, they would say to those people, um, what matters most is your heart. As long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. Don't get caught up on all that legalism stuff that they have at the church. That's what they would say. Of course, church is not caught up on legalism. Church is called up on grace. We're called up on a grace where Jesus calls us to account, a Jesus who will judge. So I would say if you're living by what the world says, not what the word says, you're a primary target for these false teachers. Watch out. Be on the alert. Now, those false teachers, what they say may sound good, but the next mark of a fake Christian or false teacher is, um, as you can see in the text, they are unable to keep their promises. Verse 19 says, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Um, They're unable to keep their promises. This is irony here, right? It's like the dietician who has the most unhealthy eating habits instructing you on how to eat, right? That's what's happening here. The false teachers are enslaved to sin, and they're saying, I can lead you to freedom. I think what is implied here is that the false teachers are saying, you know what, get out from under this structure that says you can't indulge the flesh. There is freedom out here for you. But what they don't say is that slavery to sin is some of the very worst slavery. The promise is freedom. The result is slavery to the flesh. And that's the marker here. They are, the next marker, they are slaves of corruption is what it says. The scriptures say in John 8, um, excuse me, John 8 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. To claim that immoral living is freedom underestimates the power of sin. It will rule over you. Look around you at all the people struggling with addictions. And it's just unparalleled levels of it, it seems like, in our society right now. That is spiritual slavery, and it is destructive. And I'm not just talking about substance abuse. I would say even addiction to greed. I mean, just look at the consumerism that's filling our country. Towards lust, towards pride, it's all slavery, and it will rule over you. You will not come out of sinful lifestyles unscathed apart from the power of Jesus. So I think what you need to hear this morning is that slavery is more than just chattel ownership. It's the mastery of your will by some other force. And that's what's happening. Pleasure can put you in bondage. The only thing we should be enslaved to is our love for God and our love for others. So here comes the false teacher. He makes promises he can't keep. He's a slave of corruption. He leads followers to become slaves of corruption. And what we discovered—the final marker of the false teacher is they are worse than merely lost. The false teacher is worse than merely lost. According to verse 20, they've already escaped the defilements of the world. Now they've turned back into it and they become entangled. It's become worse for them. They were pursuing right living. And just at the right moment, when you thought that they might be leaning this direction, they walk away back into the world. They become entangled and overcome. Now, I would say this final marker is a pretty shocking claim. And so we kind of have to dive into it here a little bit. Um, and so what we find here at the very end of this chapter is um, Peter explains these lies of false freedom. And so that's what we're going to look at here in these last few verses, verses 20 through 22. The first claim that we find here in the text is that it is possible to escape the defilements of the world without escaping hell. You can escape the defilements of the world and still end up in hell. And that's a scary prospect, isn't it? Because you think, oh my goodness. I mean, if I live the upright moral life here, surely that will be what eternity will be like for me. But verse 20 makes this point, the false teachers escape the defilements, then they turn back towards those defilements. And the picture that's being painted here is of moral living. Someone is motivated to cut out immorality for spiritual, religious reasons, maybe because of Jesus. And they live this, uh, you know, chaste life, but it's not really a Christian life, it's just a moral life. Well, I would say to you, morals work for anybody. Morals work for anybody. There are all kinds of people who are far from God who are very good moral people. They have high morals. I'm not saying they're righteous. I'm just saying they are being good. And you know what? Morals actually make for a good life. You know, it is good for a family, for a husband to have good morals and not cheat on his wife, whether or not he's a Christian. It helps those children out. It keeps the family intact. It's good for her. It's good for him. You know, it is good for a businessman to have high morals with regards to his finances. You know, to not cheat, to be honest in his business dealings. It pans out. It's a good way to live. But good morals is not Christianity. Some people think that being good is what Christianity is all about. They actually say it with their own lips. They say, you know, how do you know you're going to be with the Lord in heaven? Well, I've tried to be a good person. Here's the problems. problem. Morals will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. The only thing that will save you, the only thing that will wash you clean is the blood of Jesus. People can escape certain defilements through moral living, through religious practice, but you cannot escape God's judgment by just living the moral life. So it's possible to escape defilements without escaping hell. Second, it's possible to have knowledge of Jesus without having a relationship with Jesus. Notice in verse 20 it says they escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of Jesus. They knew of Jesus. So they had this interest in or this, you know, attraction to Jesus. It probably motivated their moral living. But faith in morals is not faith in Jesus. Admiration of Jesus is not a relationship. It's not accepting Jesus. Being a fan of Jesus is not following Jesus. I want to remind you what the Lord's brother said. He said that even demons believe. He says... You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. And so you notice here, the demons actually have good theology. They understand Trinity. They understand justification by faith and imputed righteousness. They have knowledge. They believe of Jesus, but they don't trust in Jesus. That's the difference. And I imagine some within the sound of my voice know about Jesus. You're not place saving faith in him, though. And you can fool me. And you can fool the person next to you. You can even fool yourself, but you will not fool the Lord. He knows. So this raises an important question we need to address. Are the people described in verse 21, they knew the way of righteousness, but turn away, are they believers who walked away from their faith? And the answer is no. Forsaking Jesus or forsaking faith in Jesus, it doesn't cause you to lose your salvation. It just reveals you were already lost. And the illustration that he gives down here is of this dog who returns to its vomit. That's kind of a gross thing. You know, and you're like, so the dog, he says, a dog returns to its own vomit. And you think, but why? Because he's a dog. And I know some of you love dogs. And you're like, not my dog. I'm just going to tell you, dogs return to their vomit. And what about this pig? This pig gets cleaned up. But man, he'll eventually dive right into the mud again, right? It's revealing who the pig is who the dog is. And I think the same thing is being said here for the person who walks away from the knowledge of Jesus. It's not that they were saved and now they're not. It's that they've revealed themselves, no, I was always just the dog. I was always just this out. I was always lost. I was just pretending. Peter makes this claim in his first epistle, and it's this, that God guards believers. Believers will certainly, not probably, believers in Jesus will certainly obtain salvation. But we're talking here about the pretenders, the false Christian. 1 John 2:19 says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. The nature of a person will always reveal itself. The false teacher will meet destruction, will lead others to destruction by deception. And so what's the application? We must be certain that our faith is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The object of your faith is critical. If you've placed your faith in your um, uh, uh, adoration of Jesus, if you place faith in your religious practice, if you place faith in your good works, in the end, it will fail you. Only Jesus can save you. Our hope of escaping corruption corruption is not just going to be because we escaped, we lived the moral life. It's going to be because Jesus changed us from the inside out. He saved us. Have you placed saving faith in Jesus? Church, Let's be a body of believers who is certain about that. That we have built our life upon him as revealed in his word. Because only that will save us. Only that will give us a certain future and a hope into eternity. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you save from the uttermost. Those who live in sin, those who have no hope of salvation, you save not because of our righteousness, not because of our good deeds, not because of our religious practices, not because of our good habits. You save us because of faith in Jesus and what he has done. He took upon himself the punishment we deserve for our sin. He absorbed the wrath, God, so that we could have the hope of eternal life in you. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus that allows us to face the future with hope. Father, I pray for those that are here now listening. Lord, would they turn to you today, Jesus? Help them not to reject you. Help them not just to listen to what's being peddled to them by fake and false Christians. Help them to turn to the true Jesus as revealed to us in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. We have a time of response. Our choir's gonna sing and right where you are, you may need to call out to the Lord in prayer. If you want to make a decision, church membership, following believers baptism, I'll be standing down front. So let me invite you to stand as our choir sings, you respond.